3: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Samir Rahim and this week we're going to be talking to the writer Lisa Opinionese about the life and work of the American intellectual Susan Sontag. First though, I'm joined by our digital assistant Rebecca Liu uh, and indeed the producer of this podcast. Rebecca, you've been reading some Sontag recently, haven't you?
2: Yes, I've made it a mission to read as much of her work as possible. Um, So I've been breezing through a few of her breezing is the wrong word, I've been laboring through a few of her essay collections and enjoying them a lot.
3: Yeah so what what do you make of it and particularly that style that Lisa identifies in terms of it is very sort of broad pronouncements, very confident stylish writer.
2: Yeah I, I'm really attracted to that and it's quite funny because sometimes I feel myself trying to mimic it and then I'm like Oh, I probably don't have the sort of broad intellect and depth to to really, you know, back up this. But um, I I find it really compelling. Um, I did a master's program and wanted to be an academic, um, before being a journalist. And I think what attracted me to journalism and writing was the idea that you you know you could put more of both yourself in it in your writing. Um. But also, yeah, make claims that don't always have to be substantiated by particular points all the time. I sometimes found that hard in academia, I think ultimately I thought I'd rather write something interesting that's spectacularly wrong um, than something correct and very minutely correct.
3: It's interesting, isn't it? So the, the idea of the, you know, the grand public intellectual, which Sontag definitely was, who can make these pronouncements on anything and, and everything, it seems to be rather out of fashion now, doesn't it? Um, looking at our sort of top 50 thinkers that Prospect identified recently, it was striking how many of them were dealing with specific issues. So the winner culture Schwarzschild was, you know, is, is is a mathematician interested in algebraic geometry. You can't get more specific than that. But even those political scientists, you know, they're doing specific research into, um, you know, uh, what it means for people on campus and what they're talking about, uh, free speech, or somebody researching uh, trade and globalization. Do you think the era of the of the sort of grand intellectual is over?
2: Yeah, so I think our editor, Tom Clark, gestured towards that in his sort of letter or preamble to it, um, alluding to, you know, the grand Marxist and Freudian theories of yesteryear. Um, I did remember reading an article once, and I now can't find it, which is quite irritating, but it was about what um, it described as the kind of entrenchment of disciplines away from each other in the university. Um, And it was sort of talking about in the past few decades, you've seen disciplines themselves become much more specialised, but at the risk of maybe, you know, doing these grand pronouncements that were possible of Marx, who kind of traversed um, a lot of them. And I think the kind of incentive structure of academia now very much privileges, you know, specific grounded expertise in areas, and that's partly why I I kind of turned out of it was I sort of realised, oh, there's not this one area or you know, specific line of thought that I want to follow down. I, I'm much more of a a forager of different things rather than someone who can kind of focus on one specific topic.
3: I think the last of the, of those figures really was Christopher Hitchens. Um, and in a way that's a salutary lesson. Somebody who the power of his rhetoric was so, um, striking, um, it was fine when you agreed with him. But when he came out with sort of opinions about the Iraq war, for example, a lot of people disagreed with, and he was, you know, he was he was wrong, really. Um, it became quite dangerous because then you're sort of saying, well, I mean, you're using this gift in the service of something that seems very uh, questionable. Um, nowadays, the figures and writers, particularly novelists, who try and venture outside um, their own worldview and try and... Um, Uh, comment on public affairs I'm thinking maybe of Jonathan Franzen do you get do you tend to get taken down as if like you you can't say that you have to be you have to sort of um, check your um, intellectual privilege um, as it were Um, and I wonder whether that might be healthy in some ways and that we don't expect these figures to um, just tell us what to think the whole time
2: that's a really interesting point and I've not thought about it much before I do remember something you said on this podcast a few episodes back. You know, you were talking about how when a novelist will have something out, quite an easy way to get public attention around an upcoming book is is to comment on current affairs. Um, And I think that probably lends a cynicism to it. Like, I'll I'll give my one perspective on this hot topic. That will, you know, be the pull quote um, in the article. Um, given in a very sort of casual way that that's sort of almost mandatory um, and I think that cheapens you know what what should be a, a thoughtful discussion um, but yeah I'm not sure I mean we might even be seeing the the reemergence of the public intellectual with the internet it's it's sort of both good and bad that you are seeing a lot more academics be very active on Twitter Um, But it means for me as someone who has left the academy that I can follow lots of people working in it still and follow their conversations, um, follow their articles and and general magazines. um, And yeah, who knows?
3: Thanks, Rebecca. Now on to the main event. And I'll be speaking to Lisa Pignonese about Susan Tontag after the break.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...
3: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Lisa Pignanese, thank you so much for joining us here to talk about your wonderful review of a new biography of Susan Sontag. She was a fascinating figure, wasn't she? But in some ways, her outsized personality seems to have overshadowed her work. Do you think that's true?
1: I don't really think that's true. I mean, a lot more people still read her, uh, perhaps watch what's on YouTube. Um, um, But, you know, they've not not met her. They don't know her. They have gossip. And... um, gossip is scintillating and uh, exciting, but it doesn't actually tell you the full story, and I think most people realise that. So I think, um, you know, people do still read her. I hope they do.
3: Let's just talk about her work, first of all, um, and then come on to her life, maybe. What do you think is the most significant thing that she contributed to um, intellectual life post-war?
1: I don't think there's a single uh, thing that you could pick out. I mean, from my point of view, she really was the only woman intellectual um, we've had um, who's been prominent in the public sphere on both sides of the Atlantic. Since perhaps Simone de Beauvoir, I mean, you know, there aren't many. And uh, from that point of view, she, she is actually rather magnificent. Um, she is also, in her essays particularly, an extraordinarily fine writer. I mean, she has a gift for aphorism and for incisiveness and for actually uh, bringing a lot of um, historical knowledge to bear on any one um, thing that she may be either looking at or reading. Um, And she brought into the vocabulary of uh, the English language, if you like, all kinds of foreign writers who may not have been noticed in quite the way they were if Susan Sontag hadn't actually said, look, this is a really interesting writer. And um, uh, you know, I think Brodsky owes something to her. I think the fact that Roland Barthes became a name that lots of people knew who weren't doing English at universities, uh, that's due to her. I mean, I th- you know, you could go through this and, and Apart from that, she wrote significant books. I mean, on photography is a significant book. Her illnesses metaphor is significant. And then there's her fiction, which I think now um, people are actually beginning to appreciate rather more um, than they perhaps did in her own time. Um, I don't quite know why that is, but this happens to writers. You know, it's very hard for writers to write across forms. I mean you're either known as a novelist or you're known as a critic or you're you know uh, known as a historian um, but it's hard to, to do all of these things and, and Susan Sontag actually you know tried to bestride uh, the written word, the visual, language, cinema, um, even stage. So it's quite a big picture.
3: <laughs> she wrote a famous essay on style and her own style um, talking really about her prose style is, is, is very distinctive, isn't it? I mean, she she wasn't ashamed or embarrassed about making grand judgments or declaring things to be the case, a style that's more associated with perhaps male writers. And do you think that, that was the combination of her erudition and her sort of grand judgments that makes her such an intriguing and attractive writer?
1: Absolutely, and and she really did have a gift for the grand generalization, but also the very specific description, um, and and the two together, uh, put in an aphoristic way, um, is is extraordinarily striking. I mean, you you know, you still go back to those essays, and even if you don't agree with them necessarily, but the actual kind of power of her writing is is still there. Certainly, it is for me, and I, I think for young people too when they go to her and say, Oh wow, who is this person?
3: (laughs) And she was also um a very charismatic individual and I believe you you know, you knew her. And what was she like as a person? Was she as um anything like the character we find in the essays?
1: Well I wouldn't say I knew her. I met her on a number of occasions and and, um because she's North American and I North American, um we're sort of palsy in that in that way that, you know foreigners in, in strange environments are but but uh, I wouldn't say she was a close friend I mean I didn't know her intimately at all. Um, sorry I've now forgotten the question having said that what was she what like was she like yeah. well um, she was many things I mean she was uh, she could be very arrogant she could be very bullish um, she could be very rude. <laughs> Um she didn't pull any punches she could also be as sweet as anything and and um you know charming and graceful and um and when she got in front of a group of people I mean I you know I used to run the the uh, talks and events side of the ICA back in the 80s and that's where I first met her and and um when she appeared in front of a, a public uh she was resonant and strong um and uh, this was still quite novel amongst women in public um, back in the eighties, and continues to be, I think, even today. Uh, certainly, somebody who actually speaks authoritatively about something else. So, either you know, whether it's politics or whether it's um, about Howard Hodgkin or uh, any, she she had very distinct views. And I, I remember this this uh, double act she did with. I remember because I watched it again not so long ago um, with John Berger about storytelling for uh, Channel 4. And, you know, John Berger is not... A, John Berger was a dear friend. And he, <laughs> he he's not an easy man to refute in public or to gainsay. I mean, he comes with a very solid presence and um, a great deal of power. And if you watch that that particular um, program, which is I think on YouTube now, um, it's quite clear that Susan Sontag, you know, won't accept any kind of anything. I mean, she knows what she thinks about uh, storytelling. She doesn't agree with John Berger's position on what storytelling is, and she says so in no uncertain terms. I mean, she's on the side of modernism and and if you like, um, exper- what we would still probably call experimental. Uh, fiction, whereas he's very important to him. Certainly at that time, after Pig Earth, um, very interested in listening and uh, witnessing. Um, and John was a fantastic listener uh, to to what people say and and how and observing how they behave. And that for him, bearing witness to to um, in that case, a disappearing community is what was important for him. Whereas Susan um, is interested in language and style and, and, and so on. And and she says so. <laughs> so
3: very much someone who knows her own mind then. But one of the revelations or so-called revelations of the new biography by Benjamin Voser is that in the 1950s, um, uh, Susan's husband, Philip Brief wrote a book about Freud called The Mind of a Moralist. But it turns out that Susan wrote that book for him um but i think that you'd actually talk to her about this um when she was alive didn't you
1: yes i i interviewed her for a program i was doing then presenting for the bbc called night waves um back in i think it was 2002 um i think it was just after her collection called where the stress falls had come out and um i'd always had a suspicion um that the writing in Philip Reeves, um, Freud, the Mind of the Moralist, you know, I've written about Freud, um, um, was not the same as his later writing. And I thought, well, you know, this happens, people's styles change. But, you know, when I was interviewing Sontag, I looked at that book again, and I looked at Sontag's prose, and I was convinced uh, that either she had rewritten it or written it. And and so I asked her, and um, she giggled, well, she laughed. <laughs> I don't know if Susan actually giggled all that much, but she laughed and said, oh, Lisa, <laughs> I think, I thought everyone knew that. All my friends knew that. Uh, Philip was blocked. And and um, you know what it was like in those days. I mean, she was older than me, but not that much older. And I do indeed know what it was like in those days. You know, you had a, a wife who wanted to write and was happy writing, and you were blocked. you as a wife, did the writing. And that was fine. And I'm sure Philip and she shared the ideas. I'm sure they discussed them. I don't think the ideas came from her necessarily. But I just think he couldn't sit in front of that white page. And she had a gift for it. And so she took his notes and whatever it is that he had his conversations and and um, you know inflected it with her own particular uh, style and if you read that book it's quite clear that certainly if it hasn't been thought by Susan it's been written by Sontag um, and I think what's interesting about it in 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 terms of of you know if you think about her work as a whole I mean her first collection and a very important essay in that first collection uh, is called against interpretation. Uh, and when I looked at that again, I had the sneaking feeling that against interpretation was actually against Philip Brief and against Freud and against all those, you know, men who were telling her, you know, how to think about things. And no, she wasn't going to do that. And one shouldn't do that as a society. One should experience um, the work of art whether it's visual or literary or happening in the street, give it its full sensuous life and allow, as she says, the erotic to speak <laughs> rather than the moralizing um, high seriousness of, of um, the reef book or the Freud voice as Americans heard it. I don't think that is necessarily Freud's voice at all times, but that's the way it was thought of uh, through Philip Reef and Susan Sontag
3: and speaking of freud um in the biography you identify perhaps a slight um over reductive application of a freudian paradigm to susan's own uh Susan Sontag's own life i mean she did have a troubled relationship with her parents and uh, her, her mother in particular didn't she uh, the biography argues that that plays out across her life in various ways you you weren't that convinced though
1: i think i think it was a little bit of over egging is the problem. I, it's not that I don't think parents, you know, play through their children's lives. Of course they do, um, and they have various fantasy permutations in their children's lives. But I think uh, the biography was was perhaps a little too uh, reductive in its application of this to very many aspects of her later life and her work. Um, and I don't really buy that, even though you know I, I, I do think Freud is a wonderful thinker
3: I mean plenty of people have difficult lives you're right but that, that doesn't necessarily um, define what they do in the rest of it and whether that actually has that much relationship with her work you have some doubts
1: well you know I think your parents are you, and of course you metabolize them in various ways, and certain difficult aspects of your parents may create certain difficulties for you. But, you know, I think by the time you actually get to the page and and you have, uh, um, you know, after your first loves <laughs> um, and you've done your rebelling and so on, um, you become you, and, and there is... Um, I mean, it's too facile if you're writing about somebody to constantly uh, go back to the initial paradigm because I don't think it's there anymore. And I don't think Freud thought it was either. Um, Freud uses, you know, the paradigm of, of the parental and and the child, and the eatable, if you like, um, to say a lot of things, but he doesn't think it's the final stamp on anything.
3: Um She's also very famous as, as an activist and for her sort of public interventions in various debates and, and discussions. She was instrumental um, in America in defending Salman Rushdie. I think you, you, um, you know a lot about that as well. Um, and of course, she, she she famously went to Sarajevo and put on a production of Waiting for Godot during the uh, during the siege. Do you think that was an important part of her... Uh, she thought that was as important in some ways as her work or did she think of that as something quite separate?
1: Well I think it's important but I don't think it's as important um, as her work. I mean I think you know because she was a public intellectual she took positions and um, sometimes she changed her mind about those positions as time went on. When she wrote about things I mean particularly say about the Twin Towers um, and she wrote from uh, a position of certainty because her prose had that quality to it. It very often got her into trouble or perhaps sometimes it woke people up and did some good. Um, I think with the Rushdie case at that time she was ac- very active at Penn. She was president of Penn and um, she. it was important what she did because she could generate a kind of excitement about the importance of what had happened uh, after all quite far away at that point uh time because uh, Rushdie was still living in Britain um that that was um extremely central to the entire campaign to to have the fatwa lifted
3: you mentioned the twin towers comments just for those people who might not know that it, it, just after week after 9/11 she wrote in the new yorker um saying whatever there may be said of the perpetrators of Tuesday's slaughter they were not cowards and then she obviously qualified that in some way but just just that incendiary line that that summary judgment um, uh, did get into an awful lot of trouble but if you read the whole extract which she she does it seems amazingly
1: prophetic in, in the kind of trouble that America got itself into after 9/11 absolutely and and you know there are many points in her life she was she was very astute um and she was very astute at that moment but i think because she wasn't actually living in america she was living in france then and the the, the distance i think helped um Um, A lot of people have quoted that and remarked both on her bravery. I mean, people as far away from the center of things as Ian Hacking, the philosopher Mm. of science. Mm. Um, And, you know, it it was important that she said this. I mean, she wasn't being unpatriotic, as she was then called and vilified for and so on. But she was pointing something out in Susan Sontag's inimitable way.
3: And Do you feel that um, if this had been a biography of... uh uh, Samuel Sontag that we would have be so focused on you know her relationships her sexuality her private life her mother um, and do you think there's something particular about writing about women that means that we seek to seek a sort of personal explanation for the intellectual work
1: I don't want to generalize too much about that but I do think in this particular biography there seemed to me to be a serious imbalance um, it was just that I think the because it, you know she a lot of people who knew her are still alive. Um, there was a lot of salaciousness um, about her homosexual um, loves um, which, which, and, and, and a lot of probing that I think, you know, if she had been Samuel Sontag, would not have been there in quite the same way um, without being counterbalanced um, with more of the actual work. And um although you know Moser is good on the work, it's not that he's bad on it, it's just that balancing that 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 becomes for me not for everybody but for me um, too much and I, I think is is actually mistaken and is to do with her being a woman.
3: The idea that her sexuality you say is, it was was private but not a secret. It's not that she sort of hid away from it but she didn't feel the need to identify herself or, or campaign as a gay woman or in that way. And do you feel that maybe she's uh, in our times now when identity and you know, becomes such a political issue that um, we look back on her and feel, well, she should have said this or she should have stood up and done that.
1: Yes, I mean, I you know I'm a historian in part, and and um, I do worry about a kind of ahistoricity when one's laying blame on people or asking them to have behaved in a particular way when it was uh, really not. Um, something that people of their generation in any way did, even the most radical of them. And I think, you know, we didn't have identity politics when I grew up, and certainly not when Susan grew up. Um, And um, I think to ask her to be a public about her affairs, um, and then take a collective stance, which was something she resisted. She was an individualist, and um, whatever she did, she did as an individual. She might speak for Um, oppressed people here, there, and everywhere. But what she did and what she wrote was as her. It wasn't as her, a woman. It wasn't as her, a gay woman. Um, And so asking her to to suddenly identify with a collective and be subject to prescriptions that she didn't like being subject to, uh, was just not on the cards. And I think it's ridiculous to blame her for that. It's like saying, really, Napoleon, you shouldn't have lived uh, when you did. You shouldn't have come just after the French Revolution. It would have been better if you had come in 1920. I mean, Ridiculous.
3: Lisa, thank you so much.
1: Thank you.
0: Acast anbefaler.
2: Mit navn er
1: Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergman. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt.
3: Vi er skidetræt af alle de der og forklarer meget der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulige ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. And that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And you can read Lisa Pignanese's review of Benjamin Moses' Sontag in this month's issue of Prospect, which is out on the newsstands right now. Rebecca Lou was this week's producer... And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It does help. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.